when I left the business in 2016, I think I didn't listen to music for a year, like literally not not on Spotify or anything. I didn't want to read about it. I didn't want to even hear anything. And I needed that break, I think, to just kind of find my own relationship with music again. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast brought to you by JBM and a series that's sponsored by Chipper Cash, the African cross-border payments company trusted by over 4 million users. I'd like to give Chipper a huge shout out for sponsoring this series. And if you'd like to be part of their mission to unlock global opportunities and bring Africa together one transaction at a time, then head over to chippercash.com forward slash careers to find out more. And while you're at it, please do check out the episode with Chipper's founder, Ham Serenjoji. We'll leave a link in the show notes. Now on to today's episode, and with World Earth Day coming up this Friday, we couldn't think of a better 40-minute mentor for this week's episode. I'm joined by the brilliant Michelle Yu, co-founder of the hugely popular concert ticket platform Songkick, and co-founder and CEO of Supercritical, a carbon removal startup that is helping businesses get to net zero. It was such an honor to host such an accomplished and mission-driven founder like Michelle on the podcast. In this episode, she shares some really candid insights into the sacrifices and challenges she faced while growing Songkit, including what it was like to face Ticketmaster in an antitrust court case and how she processed her exit from Songkit. We also talk about how she found the drive, energy and motivation to get back into the founder hot seat again was super critical. And she also shares some brilliant advice on how we can all play our part in getting to net zero. Michelle is a real inspiration, and I'm sure you'll learn tons from this episode. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy the next 40 minutes of mentorship with the incredible Michelle Yi. Michelle, welcome to 40 Minute Mentor. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you. Good. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast. I'm exceptionally excited for this conversation, having uh, had a conversation recently with your co-founder, Aaron. So this is a real pleasure. But before we jump into the story of Songkick and Supercritical and all the amazing things you've done, I'd love to just start with a few sort of quickfire questions just to warm you up. So if you are ready, please finish these sentences after me. When I was younger, I always wanted to be an astronaut. Oh, that's good. That's a good one. That's a, that's a common a common answer <laughs> to, the moon, to the moon and back. <laughs> My first job was? Working at a drum and bass record store. Wow. Honestly, <laughs> these answers are great. A drum and, were you a really like it was big the 90s. D&B fan? Okay. okay yeah, I was a huge drum and bass fan. Nice, nice. There are definitely some pictures out there of me raving away at Leeds University to some drum and bass <laughs> club nights. So <laughs> I, I, I share that. My biggest achievement in my career to date is? I think starting a second company, super critical. Love it. Love it. We're going to talk a lot more about that. I wish I could be better at? Backing my instincts and being more confident in my gut. That's a really good one. That's a really good one. I guess some people shoot from the hip uh, and sometimes make mistakes <laughs> and sometimes it's kind of the other way around. I, I've kind of got a, a bit of both of that, to be honest with you, but um, that's a really good answer. Um, my biggest vice is? Box set TV shows and just beasting them when I can. I love that. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not a vice. I, there's nothing, for me, that's the ultimate escape is the the net, Netflix binge. And finally, can you share something that we wouldn't learn from your CV? Uh, so that could be a perceived failure or a setback in your career that you've learned something from. I think that for me, 
very, very personally, becoming a mom was probably the hardest correction of my identity and where career fits in my life that I've ever experienced. And it was very unexpected and just hard to come to terms with. Like, what what does my career mean to me now that I'm a mom? So that's something you would learn from my CV. That's a really, really good one. Something I've, I, I speak a lot to my wife about. We've got a, a six-year-old daughter. I say six, six going on 16, given the, uh, <laughs> yeah, the questions we get and the, the occasional sass that she Attitude. gives me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's so true. And I think, um, you know, I, it is very different for fathers to mothers. But I remember when um, Sienna was a, a happy accident. We were definitely planning to have a family, but it came along a little bit sooner. And I just remember like that, I was two or three years into JBM, felt like we were just getting going. And I remember just being like, oh my God, I'm so unprepared for this. And I actually had like real anxiety around it. I, I, and even when Sienna arrived, the best day of my life, honestly, the best thing that's ever happened to me. And actually gave me a real added focus and, and renewed kind of like sense of purpose. But I, I did, I was waking up at like crazy hours. I was just, I, I just, I, I was really freaked out by it all and like the added pressure. So I think um, I think it's it's such a big thing, isn't it, in your life? So yeah, I totally understand that. I totally understand that. Well, I'm sure we'll come on and talk a bit more about how family fits into work and all that sort of stuff. And thank you already for sharing a glimpse into you and your backstory. Other than being a, a, a drum and bass fan, I, I'd love just to dig a little bit more into that upbringing and early career, and 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 particularly how your earlier parts of your life have helped to shape the founder that you've become now. Yeah, sure. So I I grew up in Silicon Valley. I grew up in Cupertino. My parents worked in tech. My mom worked at Apple. My dad worked at AMD. So I was always around tech, but I ended up studying the humanities. So I I double majored in philosophy and English and thought I was going to become a writer. I went to, you know, I went to do my master's at Cambridge in English. And I think that coming from the humanities and and starting a tech company in Songkick in 2007, I always felt like an outsider, you know, like more of an observer and not kind of, I didn't feel like I belonged, which I think in some ways made it harder, but also made it easier to question the assumptions of how tech worked. And I think especially being a female founder at that time, it was, I was just always the only woman in the room. And it really helped me kind of question why things were the way they were and and what, what was right and what was wrong about it. But yeah, I would say that I kind of had a sideways entry into tech. I didn't I didn't think I was going to start a company. I was never one of those people who had like a lemonade stand and was going to be a business owner from day one. You know, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. That's really interesting. I guess there, there, there may have been pressure, I guess, to, to follow in your parents' footsteps and go straight into tech. But in some ways, it's nice that you had a slightly different path and then kind of came there organically. I've seen that with quite a few founders that we've interviewed on the podcast. Do you think that entrepreneurialism was just in you anyway? Or did you just find it, you know, just through just life? Yeah, I think, well, my parents were immigrants to the States. And I think that there's always such a hustler entrepreneurial drive for any immigrant, you know, coming to a country, you don't speak the language and making your way. And my mom, especially, she, I can see this now, but at the time I didn't appreciate as a child. She's like such a trailblazer. She's absolutely fearless. She studied engineering, then got her MBA, uh, was working as an engineer, then shifted into VC. And then after she was a VC for a while, she left and went back to school to, to get her master's of divinity. She's, she's Christian and became a chaplain. So she's a chaplain at Stanford University Children's Hospital. So she's always been very like, just does what she wants to do and doesn't take no for an answer. And I think I've 
she's been a, a role model to me for sure. Do you know what, Michelle? It's so funny because my mom is a hospital chaplain. My dad, my, what, they weren't, they, they didn't pivot from tech. Uh, they, both my parents were teachers, but they're both chaplains as well. So they are actually both chaplains at my school, which was wow. slightly awkward. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's some interesting synergy there. That's, that's so funny. Songkick is a fantastic brand. You know, I, I, I was a big fan of it. But for those that don't know about Songkick, can you tell us a little bit about the business and why you decided to start it when you did and what your big mission for the company was? Yeah, absolutely. So Songkick is a live music discovery app. What it does is it looks at your music taste. So whether that's your Spotify or your iTunes, it ingests all the artists that you like and then sends you personalized concert alerts whenever one of those artists come to your city. So we all know that keeping on top of when gigs are happening and making sure you buy tickets is a big pain. We really started the business out of a personal need. You know, we were 25 at the time. I loved going to gigs. You know, you know, my first job was going working at a record store. So music was a huge part of my life. And it really just started from a personal need. You know, I had moved away from New York and came back after a few years away. And I just found figuring out what was going on really difficult. And that was around the time the iPod was invented and everyone's got their music on, you know, on their phone. And I just told my co-founders, like, can we make this thing that will look at my iTunes and then email me? And that was just kind of a personal need. But it, it turned out that we were really piggybacking on a lot of trends at the time. So it was the rise of music, streaming music and accessible music libraries with SoundCloud and YouTube and Spotify and all the rest of them, they all kind of started growing around the same time. And as there are more and more artists growing through the through streaming and delivering an audience globally through streaming, it was a lot harder to know when they were touring and where because touring started growing as well to keep up with that demand globally. So we, we were piggybacking on those trends. And yeah, I mean, we that the product and the, the app are still around. We were acquired by Warner Music back in 2016. And I'm really happy that it still exists and is helping music fans find out when gigs are happening. It's amazing. I've got to ask, Michelle, you were clearly very passionate about music and gigs, which is something that I have a similar passion. I was always told that, depending on who you ask, going into the industry of, of a passion can sometimes be an amazing thing where it kind of like doubles down on your love of that thing. Or it can be the opposite where it all of us suddenly becomes like, you know, this job that like takes sucks the, the joy out of something that you love doing. So what was it for you? And how did like working in that industry for so long? How did that like affect your love of music and, and going to live gigs? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think I fell into it because I think I've always been very mission driven. Like I have to really believe in what I'm doing. Otherwise I don't really see a point. So it was easy to start a business in something that I loved so much. And, you know, at a few years in at, at its peak, I was probably going to two gigs a week and spending all my time, you know, going to shows. But towards the end, when I started getting burnt out and, you know, we ended up suing Ticketmaster and it was really ugly and de demoralizing. I, I really, I stopped going to gigs and, and really kind of fell out of love with music in a way. And when I left the business in 2016, I think I didn't listen to music for a year, like literally not not on Spotify or anything. I didn't want to read about it. I didn't want to even hear anything. And I needed that break, I think, to just kind of find my own relationship with music again, because it had been so kind of messy and ugly and draining. So yeah, I went through my own journey with it for sure. But I love music. It's a huge part of my life. And I think it's a really important kind of human experience. 
Yeah, th- thank you for sharing. It's really good to talk about. And this part of what we want to talk about on the podcast is it's not all roses and amazing experience when you're building businesses. And, and we're definitely going to come back to that. I just wanted to ask you as a first time founder and, and as somebody that has founded a business at a relatively young age myself, there's so much to learn. And it's, it's an exhilarating, exhausting, painful experience at times. So what were some of the, the, the main lessons you learned from those kind of early stages and particular challenges you had to overcome? But perhaps anyone listening to this that's either in that, that, that sort of phase at the moment or about to embark on it. Yeah, I, I was really lucky in that after, after I left Songkick, I had the luxury of backpacking around the world for a year, which was a real hard reset around my values and just a, a really big career break. And it, I had a lot of time to reflect on what I learned and what I wanted to do differently, especially as I geared up to starting Supercritical. I worked really hard with a coach for like a year on what I wanted to change and how I wanted the second company, Supercritical, to be different. And I think the main one was seeing how I lost sight of my work-life balance and personal life. I just absolutely sunk everything into Songkick. And I didn't invest in my relationship with my family and my friends as much. And I remember when I was backpacking, you know, the first question strange people ask was like, well, what do you do? And I was like, I don't do anything. I don't, I don't have a job. And I'm picking like, who am I with my identity separate from my job? Even like, a not a job, but like a company that you start was really important to me. So one of the things that I reflected on a lot was just how I didn't take the opportunity to see my family as much as I should have. And, you know, now my sister's married, she has a kid. There was this one holiday that I had the opportunity to go on with them early in Songkit's life. And my mom and my sister, they live in California. They came to visit me and they wanted to go on a trip, to, a road trip to Ireland. And I just said, I can't go, I'm too busy. And when I look back on that time, it's like nothing was happening. There was no important thing, but I constantly made that trade-off, that decision trade-off for Songkick and not my personal life. And so now one of the things I try to be really deliberate about is investing in my personal life and my family and just looking after that separation and that mental health like divide, you know? And I don't think that that was much of the conversation back then around mental health and self-care and all that, all that stuff that we are a lot more sophisticated about today. So that was a big learning. I think another one that I try to take into being now that I'm the CEO, super critical at Songkick, I was the chief product officer. I would, I didn't have to be the front facing leader and finding my own way of being a leader that feels authentic to me. You know, I'm not like, I'm an introvert. I'm not the most charismatic, like in your face, you know, wow you with my personality kind of person. So how can I find a way that feels real and like honest for me to be leading a team? And, and how do I do that in my own way? And that's another kind of thing that I took, took into Supercritical. Thanks, Michelle. That's really interesting. You've alluded to uh, things got a bit messy, let's say, uh, towards the end of Songkick with a, a legal case and all that sort of stuff. So can you tell us a bit about how the exit came about? Firstly, the, the exit, which is obviously something huge and not something many people get to go through. But you've talked about, I think, how part of that whole process you know, felt like a bit of a failure and, and there was grief, you know, feelings of grief around it. So can you tell us a bit about that part of the story and then how you ended up being able to process those and kind of move forward? Yeah. So towards the last few years of Songkick, we had a few massive kind of changes in the company. We ended up merging with another business called CrowdSurge to create create a 50-50 merger of equals. And that in its own experience is a, is a really disruptive and difficult to manage thing to navigate a company through. And you know, I was really proud that nobody left as a result of that merger. We were able to 
you know, make the cultures work together, a lot of like intense one-on-ones with people and and making sure that people were stable and, and felt like inspired and believed in the new merged entity. But that was really exhausting. I think as a leader of a merged company, you know, anytime I talk to somebody who's going through that that sort of experience, I have so much empathy because you have to be so strong and put on a brave face, even though you're experiencing the same like turmoil and disruption. But we managed to do that. And then the, the company we merged with sold tickets on behalf of artists to their fan club. So they had all the supply around artist ticketing. And we had all the demand. You know, we had 20 million people using us monthly to find out when concerts were happening. So it was this, you know, beautiful whiteboard MBA exercise of supply and demand coming together. And as we started seeing the success of that merged business, it was really when we ticketed Adele's world tour, which was such that was another like massive career highlight, being able to go to the O2 and see like you know, half this room came through because of this app that we built. It was a really great experience, but that really kind of started to threaten Ticketmaster and they started to clamp down on our business and do all these things to kind of clamp down on our supply that was really exhausting. And we we ended up, you know, we had no choice but to sue them for antitrust violations in, in the state of California. And going through a lawsuit when you start a business is, you know, you don't start a company to end up in a lawsuit. And that was just a different skill set and a different corporate experience, if you like, than what I had ever known about or kind of built up my skill set around. So that was tiring and exhausting. And and that that drags on you. That's like that's measured in years and decades, not days and weeks like like startups. So that was dragging on. And and we were able to sell the the app and the team to Warner Music, which was a safe landing for the product. And and that was a great, a great place for the team to end up. And I'm really happy that the product still lives on. But I think when you ex- exit your business, at least for me, I'm a, I'm a pessimist, I guess. I really had to prepare for them to just shut it down because I think you hear of so many acquisition stories where the, you know they shut down the product, strategies change, and it's not in your control anymore. So it was a real kind of letting go and saying goodbye. And I think that being able to kind of let go of that... And I think externally, people might see it as success. But as a founder, you really start a company wanting to take it all the way go public, you know, make it be this massive consumer brand. And it was kind of this weird ending of a lawsuit where we won a settlement for $130 million and then the product was acquired by another company. It just felt like very unresolved. So I had to... to, It took many years unpicking what did that mean? You know, what did I achieve? Is that a success or not? And am I okay with it? Just took, took a long time to process. Before we continue with today's episode, I was wondering if I could ask you a small favor. We absolutely love sharing our guests' inspiring stories with you, and I can't thank you enough for being one of our loyal listeners. But feedback is so important. So if you have any suggestions on how we can make 40 Minute Mental even better, or you just want to tell us how much you love the show or a particular episode, then we would love to hear from you. So please head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm and leave us a review. We really, really appreciate it. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm. Thank you so much and we can't wait to hear from you. From the outside, it clearly was just this something you can be so proud of, but I guess you're so close to it, aren't you? And especially when you're having to go through all that legal stuff, which is, as you said, draining and stressful and, and probably actually not the worst uh, experience to go through in terms of preparing you for, for future experiences as a founder. But 
not really something anybody wants to go through. So I can see how that tarnished things a bit. But as you said, great that the, the legacy lives on. And great that you were able to kind of take some time out. I know you took some good time out. You, you went to sort of traveling and I guess reconnecting with your family and, and resetting priorities and stuff. I think that's, that's just, if you can do it, it is such a great thing to do. And and I guess you've had the energy and the desire to go again, which is um, is, is amazing. Your new company is called Supercritical, which I'm, I'm a big fan of what you're doing. But for those that don't know, can you tell us a bit about your mission and what Supercritical does? Yeah, absolutely. So we have built a software platform that helps businesses get to net zero. And what we do is we help a company measure their carbon emissions. That's kind of all the upstream emissions in your value chain and downstream in your product usage. And then we help companies plan their net zero pathway. So how much they're going to reduce year on year in their carbon emissions. And then we sell high quality carbon removal offsets as well to help businesses get to net zero. And carbon removal, unlike traditional offsets, are the only type of offset that count towards net zero. It's such a great idea. And uh, I think something that a lot of, well, we've seen increasingly some of the best talent that are coming to us, whether it's for executive roles or, or kind of what we would call future leaders, they want to work in a company that is ch- trying to change the world and make the world a better place. And this is a perfect example of that, you know, in, in its purest form. Given how things ended at Songkick, before we come on to just talking a bit more about getting to net zero, which I think is something that people are going to want to want to hear your thoughts on. How did you decide to go back into startup life again and to become a founder again? And, you know, because you've clearly been through this kind of, I guess, almost like this breakup experience. So tell us what it was about this problem and Supercritical that made you go again. Yeah, I definitely didn't think I would go again. When I left Songkick, I didn't know what I wanted to do. As I mentioned, I traveled for a year. And when I came back, I really thought like, what, you know, I started from a blank piece of paper. My husband always jokes that I I always need to like destroy everything and raise it down to nothing to build it back up again when there's obviously stuff I could build on already. So I joined Local Globe as a venture partner. They're a seed stage fund here in London. The founder was one of the first angels into Songkick and he could see that I was a bit lost and I didn't know what I was doing. I was consulting and doing random things. He was like, why don't you just hang out Local Globe and figure out what you want to do next. It was an amazing platform to take that time to explore. And I I just had the time to read and learn about new sectors that I had never thought about before because I was so head down in music. And that's really when I got engaged with the climate crisis. You know, I read a book that that was um, Yvonne Chouinard, the Patagonia founder and CEO's memoir. And I read that more as a company values handbook because I also admired how Patagonia operated. And the whole book's about climate change. So that was my climate red pill moment, if you like, where it's like, oh, this is really bad. I thought scientists had it under control, but it's really bad. I'm really scared now. And... Around that time, I had my son in 2018. And really when you, at least for me, when I had him, all the timelines people talk about with climate change, like getting to net zero by 2050, you know, reducing by 2030, those timelines become very tangible because I can look at him and you still be young and what kind of world are we leaving you with? And so I knew I wanted to do something around the climate crisis, but even then I didn't know what, like, am I going to become an investor? Will I advise, like join, you know, I looked at, I did a deep dive on Impossible Foods. I found that didn't be a really inspiring company, but I just didn't know. And I took that time to research and read and meet a lot of great experienced people in climate. And that was when I learned about the need to scale carbon removal. 
So carbon removal is this early stage technology that literally absorbs carbon dioxide from the sky and buries it underground in various forms. And I learned in reading kind of the IPCC, that's the UN body of scientists that does this climate analysis, that in order to stay below 1.5 degrees of warming, which is what everyone says is this you know, safe, acceptable amount of warming to live in, we need to remove billions of tons of carbon from the sky. And even if we electrify everything and switch to renewables and decarbonize, we still need to remove billions of tons because we just have polluted so much. And when I learned that, and I learned that we've only removed a few hundreds of thousands of tons, but we need to remove billions, that became really scary to me. I was like, oh my God, there's this urgent scaling challenge. No one's talking about it. No one's really you know, focusing on it. What can I do? Like, what can I do about it? And I just, it was an idea that I couldn't let go of. And meanwhile, I saw all of these companies making carbon neutral announcements and buying offsets on the market. And these offsets that most people are buying aren't removing carbon from the sky, but essentially pay other people to stop emitting and stop polluting. So they're what's called emissions avoidance offsets. So these are things like you paying someone to build a renewable energy project or pay someone to switch to a cleaner cook stove. But in that world, you emit a ton of carbon, you pay someone to stop emitting, your ton is still out there warming the planet. And I just felt like this was so wrong. Like, why are people buying these offsets that aren't doing anything? Well, we have to remove carbon. You could pay for someone to remove your carbon. That's what people should be buying. So it was really this deeply felt conviction that the world's not doing what I think it should be doing. And I couldn't let go of the idea. So I finally was just like, I need to do something about this. I need to start a company that helps to do this. And it was it was kind of reluctantly being dragged into it, I guess. And you mentioned that you met Aaron. We actually started talking about starting it in 2020, like January 2020. And I said, I'm not ready. I have all these issues and baggage I need to work through. And he basically waited for me for a year to kind of feel ready to start it, even though the idea was already there. And, and I just needed to take that time to like gear myself up for, for doing it. But I think there's a lot to be said about taking the time, especially when you've been through, you know, such a, a full-on journey, a very successful one. But But I think... I see a lot of people jump into the next thing, whether it's like, even if it's not as a founder, like you've been a, you know, an early employee at Uber and you've been through that journey and you've cashed out. And, and I've seen a lot of friends that have, have then have worked in that sort of environment and they felt like they've got to go again. And they haven't really taken the time just to take stock and it sort of get some time back. And, and often those, those moves don't work because it's very hard to replicate that experience again. It's actually probably impossible. So you kind of need to just accept that it's it's going to be a different experience. And that's where just taking a bit of time to really get the next move right is, is a really sensible thing to do. So I, I love the fact that you took your time about it because you clearly have had looked at lots of different things and then just found the thing that is just like your passion. And I couldn't think of a better topic, to be honest with you. And it's great to see that, you know, the, the net zero agenda and, and, and sustainability and climate change in general has become now, you know, finally really recognized as the, the major issue in the world that we need to we need to solve. There's still obviously tons more to be done. How do you help businesses that take bolder climate actions? And, and, and what do you commonly see companies doing wrong, uh, especially when it comes to corporate sustainability programs? Yeah, I would say that it's not that they're doing anything wrong, but what we do is we come in and we help people kind of turn their good intentions into a good action plan. So really the the core idea of Supercritical came about because while I was at Local Globe, the founder told me to get them to net zero. He's like, we need to get to net zero. This is what people are doing. You go figure it out. And that process took me six months to get my head around 
like, what is net zero? Reading all the literature, which is really badly communicated, talking to a bunch of consultants. And I found that process really frustrating. And I knew from my time at Songkick, building a consumer internet product that 20 million people use, like, if you don't make stuff really simple and like within five seconds you get it, people just won't act because they'll just be too confused. So we kind of come in as an outsourced, you know, a sustainability expert to help companies with their plan because most of the businesses we work with, they're not going to hire a sustainability team, even at 500, 1,000 people. It just doesn't make sense for them. And they can really trust us with putting together a good plan. And I think there's a lot of rightful fear and paranoia of businesses of being accused of greenwashing. A lot of companies pay lip service. They like market a, a plan that doesn't really do anything. And we really want to come in and be that trusted partner for companies. And what we finally usually see is that these companies really care about this. This is something they really want to do. They might have like a green committee in their team that are doing you know ad hoc things like recycling or go plant a tree day. But none of this is really done based on data. And that first step of measuring the climate impact of your company, the carbon emissions from all of the purchased goods and services that you buy, how much carbon emissions is related to that? How does that relate to your business travel emissions? How does that relate to the food and drink that you're serving in your canteen and staff lunches? Like, Until you have that holistic picture of your climate impact, you don't really know what you should be acting on. So that is the very first step is just measure your greenhouse gas emissions upstream and downstream. And once we've done that, then we can put together an action plan. So one of the CEOs we recently worked with said, okay, I've stepped on the scale. Now I know how bad it is. What's the training program? And that's the second half of what we do is based on your carbon emissions, we can help you with how you can reduce, like what actions you can take. That might be switching your office to a renewable energy provider, You know, limiting your flights and cutting down on first class travel because first class flights are twice as many emissions as economy. You know, These are simple steps that you can take. Another big one that people don't really know about is pension. Like You spend a lot of money on your pensions. And if you're not contributing to a green pension and that pension fund is financing fossil fuels, then that's related to carbon emissions as well. So it's really demystifying all the sources that you're responsible for and helping you with that action plan and giving you this, you know, we find that with most of our businesses, with a few simple low-hanging fruit, you can reduce by up to like 10 to 15%. So there's a lot you can do. And then as I said, the second half of what we do in terms of selling carbon removal offsets, so that's the core mission of what we do. We want to help scale carbon removal. And most of these offsets, like the best example is probably direct air capture, which is literally a, a stack of fans that filter carbon from the sky and bury it underground. These aren't accessible to the average tech company. You know, They sell to the Microsofts of the world, but they're not accessible to the you know, 500 to 1,000 person tech company. So by aggregating demand across all of our customer base, we can help them access these carbon removal suppliers. And we've we've sourced and vetted them ourselves. We have a scientist on the team that makes sure that they're of high quality so that you don't have to worry about the quality of what you're buying because there's been a lot of bad stuff happening in, in the world of offsetting, lots of fraud, a lot of like things being sold that don't do what they say they're going to do. So that quality trusted element is really important for customers as well. Thanks, Michelle. It's, it's a real eye-opener and it's so great to see. And I think to your point about demystifying and then making actually tangible recommendations of, of, of things because i think a lot of people out there a lot of companies want to do they want to do better they want to make an impact on this stuff but don't have a clue where to start and i'll be totally honest i'm in that boat so for, for all the the non-experts listening to this not even long going i want a better world for, for my children and you know to, to live in what advice do you have for them that you know the normal person that works in the company you know does their recycling, is cutting down on travel. But what are the things they can do when it comes to 
doing their part when it comes to the climate crisis? Yeah, I, I went through a whole journey with this because, as you know, I came from the consumer internet world. And initially, I started doing a deep dive into my personal life. I was like, what am I doing? You know, how much beef am I eating? How much am I flying? And, you know, an individual's carbon emissions, the average British average is 12 tons, whereas the average company we work with is maybe, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not thousands of tons. So I went through this process of like, okay, I can do so much in my personal life, but that impact is so tiny. What is the actual kind of leverage point I have? And I would say that it's asking your employers to engage with the challenge and asking your company, like wherever you work, like, what are we doing about this? And some leaders say to me, well, you know, I'm one tech company. I'm not a steel producer or a a fossil fuel company, what's the big deal? Like what responsibility do I have? But actually the whole tech sector as a whole emits as much as aviation and flights. So we're on par with flights. So that's everything from the hardware we buy to streaming and all, you know, data centers and stuff. So we have a huge responsibility and that's only growing year on year as more of the world moves to digital. So we do have a responsibility. And I think that Talking about climate change, talking about it with your friends and loved ones, making an issue that you, you, you know, that's how you vote. And these are issues that are important to you, but also speaking to your employer, your, your spheres of influence, you know, and, and getting your employers to, to really care about it. And, you know, most of them do want to do the right thing. Like so many CEOs and people we work with, like chief people officers are acting because they're feeling pressure from their team and their employees are asking them or talent as their interviewer asking like, what are you doing about this? So that voice really does matter and make a difference. That is the perfect segue, Michelle, to, into my next question. Because as you said, you know, this is coming up more and more with candidates we're talking to, clients, uh, you know, having to think about this as a key part of their employer branding message. So apart from the obvious one of attracting better talent that are, are aligned to these important things in the world and the ethical side, like, what else do you think businesses benefit from? Uh, by being more purpose-driven, by being more sustainable. And it would be great just to, to hear a bit about, you know, the sorts of people that you're hiring and, and what you look for in talent as a result. Yeah, I think that, you know, as you've experienced, talent really cares about working for a mission-driven company or a company that cares about doing the right things and is very deliberate and thoughtful about it. I mean, the, the, the second most common reason why businesses start to work with us is investor pressure for ESG reasons. So there's so much movement around ESG investing now, you know, the SEC as well as the UK Treasury are starting to make public companies report on their carbon emissions because they're seeing climate risk as financial risk now, which it is. It, you know, you already see with flooding and wildfires and stranded assets, there's a lot of pressure around it. So investor pressure is definitely a reason as well. So even at the VC backed stage, a lot of VCs are starting to ask their their portfolio companies, what are you doing about these these things like diversity and inclusion and climate change and, and climate impact? And that's only going to grow as time goes on. And eventually, I think it will be regulated. It has to be if, if we're going to get to net zero as, as a planet. So that's probably the economic reason why people do it, the cost of capital and access to investment. Following your Sonkic experience, you made it your mission to have a 50-50 cap table as super critical, which I think is just amazing. Can you tell us a bit about kind of why you did that and what the benefits are of having greater diversity, you know, uh, in, in your investors? And just I'd love your thoughts in general around how you're going about building a more diverse company, you know, a second time around. Yeah, I, I think with Songkick, I had my own personal feminist awakening. You know, when I started the company, I didn't think anything about the fact that I was a woman 
But once I was in the tech sector, a female founder, I was always the only woman in a room, whether that's pitching to VCs or even our management team, I was the only woman in there. And I started just like opening my eyes to that fact and wondering like, what the hell is going on? This is the pre-Me Too, pre-Uber, like pre-tech sector, you know, reckoning with it. And I started kind of grappling with my own issues, you know, like my own imposter syndrome, you know like microaggressions, like people assuming I'm the PA to the CEO when I'm their co-founder, just small, stupid things like that. And I think that once I left Songkick and I was starting to think about Supercritical, I was just a lot more confident around my you know, feelings about diversity and how much diversity matters. And so with Songkick, because I awoke to it through the time of getting there, you know, we, we had amazing women on our team and amazing female developers. We were nowhere close to 50-50 because by the time we started tracking it, it was way too late. It was already like 80-20, right? And it's hard to correct once you're 100, 200 people, right? So I feel like I have the luxury of with this business, like starting from day one with the values I care about. And I just told Aaron, you know, like I have this crazy idea. I want to have a 50-50 cap table. I've never seen it happen before. And I think that was really driven by two personal experiences. One was, you know, joining Local Globe and seeing that their team, their investment team was 50-50 and feeling like that's amazing to be in a room of women investors. Just the, you know, the dynamic is very different from when you're a room of alpha males and, you know, it just felt very different. But then I also personally started angel investing in that gap. And I watched my husband and Songkit co-founder, he's he's my husband, you know, he started angel investing and I was like, wow, I want to kind of do that. I wonder how I can do that. And like, I felt very like sheepish about it and felt like, what what value do I have to bring? I don't really know. And I started angel investing and I realized like there's no secret skill or like club you need to join. You just put money in and help a founder. And I, having my own experience with that, I just really wanted to introduce that to women in my network and bring them on board and, and see if I could you know, be the first check for some of the great women in my network. And I am now with Supercritical. And when, when we started out and I said I wanted to do that, Aaron was so supportive. He's like, yeah, we have to do it. And it definitely took longer. It was it was harder to do. There were some dark moments when we were pitching and we we're like so oversubscribed with men. And I just was like, I am not meeting enough women. I don't know how I'm going to do this. It's probably very similar to recruitment, actually. It's just a pipeline funnel problem. Just need to meet more women at the top of the funnel to get them down. And that's really how we re- approach recruitment today as well. It's like we are very mindful of our, you know, our split in the team. And if we're interviewing enough women and getting in front of enough women and just putting that time in, you know, making sure that you're you're getting in front of them. There's no secret magical place you'll find them. You just have to work harder. You just have to work harder. That's exactly it. And I commend you. And I really hope there are lots of other people listening to this that are going to be building businesses and have to take a similar approach because that will see the difference we want to see in the industry if, if more companies take that stance. Alice Bentick, who I know was uh, in, in the round, she's been a fellow 40-minute mentor and has done so much for the ecosystem. And I just think this sort of story is what we need to hear. And, and so uh, thank you for, for sharing it. We're sadly at the end, uh, Michelle. We, we've got some wrap-up questions here. Um, I feel like well, this is definitely going to be a round two because I know that, that you, you are going to go on to some amazing things in the years ahead. In one sentence, what do you think the future holds for Supercritical? We're just going to help more and more companies to get to net zero and have a massive impact on scaling carbon removal. You know, our, I had to write a 10-year Wikipedia entry for Local Globe when we were getting our seed funding, which I think is an amazing exercise to do. Like, what, what does the company idea. look like in 10 years? And I was like, I want to be responsible for half a million, you know, 
500 million tons of carbon being removed through our through our marketplace. So that's our North Star. Love that. And at the end of your career, I, I guess it might be, might be similar, but what do you want to be remembered for? I want to be remembered for having impact on the things that mattered and always keeping the right thing in front of me as I make every decision. But hopefully it's in having big impact on climate change. Love it. This is 40 Minute Mentor. I have to ask, do you have a mentor? And if you could be mentored by one person, dead or alive, who would it be and why? You know, honestly, my mentor is my husband. So he was my co-founder at Songkick. He is probably the smartest person I know. He's an incredible business brain. And I just seek his advice for everything. And he's so generous with his time. And it's, it's, I think it's hard to build that trust with a mentor, right? Because you have to be vulnerable, but also know that they know more than you. And, and I just feel really lucky that I have someone so close to my life that I can just bother, <laughs> bother with all my questions. That's wonderful. What a great answer. And I must say, I lean on my wife in, in so many different ways when it comes to advice and shoulder to cry on and, you know, just a rock through the, the ups and downs of entrepreneurial life. So uh, I'm sure there are many other founders out there that would, would say similar. Finally, Michelle, what's your last piece of career and life advice you'd like to leave our listeners with? I think it's to give yourself time to really figure out what's important to you. Like, you, you know, that conversation we had earlier about rushing to the next decision. For me, when I, you know, between song kicking supercritical, I took a four year break and being patient with myself while I figured out what I wanted to do was so hard. I'm, I'm a very planning type of person. I wanted the plan. I wanted to know what I was going to do next and execute on it. And just giving me that space to be fallow and curious and not know was really hard but it was really important so it's if you don't know just give your if you can give yourself that time and and give yourself that break to explore and be open-minded to what's next i think that's such good advice and i really would echo that i think too often in this day and age where you know there's such pressure to move fast and you know just hustle your way through life and there are definitely times for that, but I think especially when you're coming out of a, an experience, whether that's an amazing one, a traumatic one, like a, you know, or your pivoting careers, there's, there's a lot to be said for pause and reflection, you know, taking counsel, getting mentorship and taking your time before you jump back in, particularly if it's a new startup venture, because we all know that they are all consuming and, and you really want to get it, try and get it right. And it reminds me of something that a, a fellow 40 Minute Mentor said, Mo Gowda, who said, don't take big risks take sure steps. And I really like that, you know, just it's sometimes it's okay to kind of go for things, but also just make sure you're you know, taking the time to make sure you're making the right call for you. Uh, and it's different for all of us. So um, yeah, Michelle, thank you for being such a great 40 minute mentor. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I love what you're doing. And uh, we really wish you all the very best with your mission over the years ahead. And uh, really look forward to a round two, hopefully in the not too distant future. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much. Michelle is an absolute fountain of knowledge, and she shared so many great insights into the true roller coaster life that is being a founder. I enjoyed our conversation so much and could really relate to a lot of what she said. I really admire how she dealt with such a challenging exit at Songkick and found it fascinating to understand the process she went through to create Supercritical, particularly how being a parent helped to inspire her to build a business focused on tackling the climate crisis. As a parent to a six-year-old, I share a lot of the same fears that she has and really admire her for doing something about it. 
It's not every day you meet someone who can break down the complexities of carbon emissions and help businesses to actually take action. But that's exactly what her and her team are doing. And let's not forget the incredible 50-50 cap table that Supercritical has committed to. Michelle's super refreshing take on diversity and inclusion. I really, really admire the way that Michelle is taking a fresh approach when it comes to DNI in tech. And I think she's making a real difference in so many ways. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. As always, I'd love to hear from you. So please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And before I let you go today, I wanted to give a shout out to a new podcast I discovered, which I think you'll really enjoy. The Sheer Lux Teen Podcast. Hear a bit more about it in the upcoming trailer. Do you want an edit of the best new ins at Zara, the best new concealers, the best new restaurants, the best in travel? Well, you get the idea. Over 350,000 women receive the Sheerlux daily email covering all things fashion, beauty, life, culture and home. Are you missing out? Head over to Sheerlux.com to subscribe now. And that's all for me today. Thanks so much for tuning in again. And don't forget to subscribe to be the first to know about our latest episode. I'll see you next week for some more brilliant mentorship. Thanks so much.